Hello and welcome to the Pall Mall Doughboys podcast, a War One history podcast keeping alive what is often called the Forgotten War. Coming to you from Sergeant Alvin C. York State Historic Park in Pall Mall, Tennessee, on the banks of the Wolf River. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host today, Park Manager Nate Dotson. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pal Mal Doughboys podcast. We're going to continue our series of having special guests on the show. Uh, this particular person is our new administrative assistant at the park. His name is Alec Parsons, and we are talking about a family member of his uh, that he researched that had uh, participated in World War One and uh, the infamous Ship of Death the USS Leviathan. So here's the interview with Alec. Hope you enjoy. Alec, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, just to jump right into it, can you tell us about yourself and where you grew up at and that kind of thing? Yeah, um, well, I uh, was born and raised in Wilson County, Tennessee. So uh, I was actually born in Lebanon, which is the county seat there in Wilson County. But I mainly grew up out in, outside of Watertown, Tennessee, which is a small little uh, community to the southeast. Uh, yeah. of Lebanon that's where I grew up for uh, most of my life okay and then you went to tech right Tennessee Tech yes I went to Tennessee Tech uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Science in History very cool yeah Alec is our newest member of the of the park here and uh, it's it's been great having him I mean this is what your first month into the job uh, officially yeah a little bit uh, over a month yeah so uh, but but he's been with us for a couple years as a seasonal so it's been great having him and uh, great getting to know him. Um, so I guess uh, looking at World War One history, Alec, what uh, what got you interested in it to begin with, or do you feel like were you interested in it before you started here, or anything like that? So I, I knew a little bit about World War One history. Um, I think once I started working here at York is really when I started to learn a lot more about it, um, talking to other staff members right. here at the park, and learned a lot about World War One there. Of course, Alvin York has, uh, of course, served in World War One, and so I really began to have an appreciation a lot more for the war uh, once I started working here at, at York. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, you know, as a staff, we all got together and, uh, and talked about this before our Veterans Day event in 2023. We were uh, highlighting the Tennessee experience in the war, t- trying to tell or, or dive deeper into Tennesseans, uh, specific Tennessean stories. So people beyond Alvin C. York, you know, uh, folks that might be from our own hometowns or from Fentress County or something like that. And so we all uh, decided to uh, tell a different soldier's story or, or um, you know, it d- didn't have to be a soldier, just somebody involved in World War One. And uh, so you chose uh, a soldier that was pretty neat. Um, who was that and why did you choose that exact person? So the soldier that I chose was uh, Clyde Heston. Uh, he was my great, great uncle. Um, and I had chose him actually because of some of the uh, research I had done on my family. 
And I had heard about him, I didn't really know a lot about him, but then when I learned that we'd be doing these presentations on uh, the people that were mm -hmm. in World War I, I was like, oh, well, I know that Clyde Heston served, so maybe I should dig into his story and see what I can learn and then maybe talk about that for, for Veterans Day. Yeah, okay. And had you heard any of his story before that? Or so were you aware of it? Leading up to the, uh, to the event, I knew his name and I know that he had died during the war. Okay. That's really all I knew. I didn't really know a lot of details. Uh, and so uh, really going into it, I had just a name and I knew when he was born and died. And that's basically all I knew. Right. Okay. Well, um, so I guess, uh, you know, if, if you don't mind giving us that story as you gave it at Veterans Day, I actually missed your presentation that morning. We were kind of running around uh, yeah. quite busy on Veterans Day. Um, but Alec gave uh, a talk on Clyde Heston's story. And uh, so, yeah, we wanted uh, to get him on this podcast today just to hear Clyde's story. So I guess without further ado, can you tell us a little bit of what you found in your research and in his life? Yeah, I, I can. Yeah. Um, just to kind of give you an introduction to who uh, Clyde Heston was, uh, he was born on August 17th of 1896. Uh, he was born in Moss, Tennessee. So okay. if you're not familiar with where Moss, Tennessee is, uh, it's in Clay County, Tennessee, where okay. my family is from. It's on the western side there of the county. And he grew up in a little community there uh, called Pine Hill. Uh, just a small little community with a few little uh, families all gathered together there. They had a church and a little schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. um, but he was actually one of uh, ten children. Cool. Um, his parents were Esco and Ethel Heston. And uh, he just grew up on the family farm. Those are great um, names, by the way. I had I to know. interrupt you there. Esco and Ethel. Esco, those, yeah. those are really good names. Uh, but yeah, he was the oldest of 10 there, and he would just help his dad uh, on their farm there, uh, primarily just helping him with all sorts of different tasks on their farm. And uh, the early part of his life, I've never really been able to find too much mm -hmm. about him growing up. But really where his story kind of picks up is when he uh, registers for the draft. Okay. Um, so he would register uh, uh, in June of 1918. Mm -hmm. um, he'd actually just turned 21, and so all the young men in that area that, had, that were around the age of 21 or had just turned 21, they would all enlist. And so uh, Clyde would do that. Uh, mm -hmm. He would enlist in Salina, which is the county seat there in Clay County. Yeah. Um, and he didn't, uh, nothing too special about the draft card. He just filled out his basic information, like uh, his color of his eyes, you know, just a basic information that would mm -hmm. be on the draft card. Um, and so that's kind of where his story picks up. Well, uh, a couple months later, uh, so this would be in September, uh, the, almost to the day, September, actually it was to the day, September 5th of 1918, um, there would be, uh, he would be uh, sent off. Uh, he would be selected um, from the other people that had signed their draft cards there, and he would be sent down to Double Springs, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, Double Springs, Tennessee is in Putnam County, and it was a small little railroad hub there in Putnam County between okay. Baxter and Cookville. So kind of right there in between there, and he would be sent down there. Um, and he was to be sent off to camp to begin his basic training there uh, uh, after being sent down there. And he did send a small little postcard to let his family know that he had been chosen, he had safely made it to the railroad, and he was being sent off to South Carolina. Okay. And so uh, he would send that note to his family, and then he would be sent off to South Carolina uh, to Camp Wadsworth. Uh, that was the camp down there. Uh, it was in Spartanburg, which is in kind of the northern section there, kind of more hillier country there in South Carolina, uh, and that's where he would be sent to begin his basic training. Um, he was actually one of 3,000 Tennesseans uh, that would be sent down on that September 5th time on that train from uh, Cookville area. Other people were from West Tennessee, but kind of in that Upper Cumberland area as well, and they would all reach Spartanburg on September 7th, so about a couple days to make sure everybody was able to get down there. 
And so he would actually, once he gets down there, so this is September 7th, he would send a letter home to his family. Uh, he was saying, this, pay, this place is a pretty place. Uh, he said the camp covered about 3,000 acres, but he said it was very sandy. It was a, a sandy country to him. So that was something he was not used to, being from the Upper Cumberland area. He had never really traveled very far from home, so that was kind of a, a new experience there for him. Okay. Um, so he would go down there. Um, he would be given his uniform and other equipment uh, while he's there in the camp. He would be vaccinated, and he would begin drilling. Um, they, he would uh, send several letters home during this time uh, talking about what it was like to be vaccinated, what it was like to, uh, to go through all the drills and stuff. Uh, one quote there, he said that he has been vaccinated. Uh, it was the third time I've been vaccinated since I've been here, and I feel pretty sore, and quite honestly, I feel pretty blue. <laughs> uh, so he didn't quite like those vaccines there. Um, but on the drilling, though, uh, talking about him learning all the different drills and stuff, he said, don't worry about me. I'm having a good time. Uh, I'm learning to drill very fast, and uh, I love it just fine, for I've had plenty to eat and wear. And so he's kind of liking the experience there at the, at the camp. Uh, he would actually only spend two weeks there, though. Um, so uh, by uh, September 23rd, um, he would actually be leaving the camp. Um, and uh, that was, So he only spent a short amount of time there, but he would enjoy the time yeah. uh, while he was there in South Carolina. Okay. So. I wonder why they shipped him out so uh, so quickly, just moving to another camp? Uh, part of it was because they were trying to get a lot of these men uh, overseas uh, mm -hmm. during that time. Uh, uh, part of it also was because of the particular uh, regiment that he was placed in, because he was placed in the 57th Pioneer Infantry Regiment. Okay. And so if you're not familiar with what uh, a Pioneer Infantry is, um, they were primarily just focused on uh, maintenance work and also like combat engineering stuff on the front lines. And so they did not have as in-depth training as other soldiers would have had because their primary focus was to go in and clear roads, uh, dig trenches, uh, repair bridges, just all of those stuff. Now, they would be prepared to be on the front lines. Mm -hmm. So they would have been in the fire uh, on the front lines there, but they didn't receive as much in-depth training as would have been a normal infantry unit. So that's why he only had to spend two weeks uh, in the camp. Right, so learning drill and stuff. But uh, do you know what his, uh, his primary, like, uh, skill set was in in that in that group the pioneer infantry I, I don't really know um, they had a lot of just kind of farm boys mm -hmm. that were in the group so I wonder if they just needed good hard workers maybe that would have been able to come in there and just do what needed to be done uh, and just step up to the plate I guess in that regard uh, one question I was thinking of Alec uh, on his draft card going back to that did he he didn't apply for exemption or anything like that did he no he uh, well on that line there he just put none so he had no exemptions uh, when it came to, to serving okay. World War I. Yeah. And then uh, also I was kind of what struck me too is the timeline. Uh, this is in 1918 in September, correct? Yes. So, you know, um, you're looking at the start of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive at the end of that month and really the sort of final push to the end of the war. So he was, he was right there at the end. Um, so... Uh, does he ship out from that camp and, and go overseas at that point? So uh, he would be sent to New Jersey to Camp Merritt there. Um, that was kind of the uh, holding ground for him to be placed on a ship and sent overseas to France. Um, he would spend a short amount of time there in New Jersey, and he would send one last letter home while he was there at the camp, at Camp Merritt. Um, I always This one was very interesting to me because... Uh, when he talks about in that last letter, he talks about how he had seen all these wonderful things that he, uh, he would love to tell his family about. So, for example, he said that he saw the Washington Monument. He got to see the White House. Uh, he went through uh, and saw Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and saw all these places. And he's, he might have read of these in books, 
but he had never been to these places, and so he talked about how he just wanted to tell his family about these. Uh, on the back of that little post, uh, on the little letter there, he wrote that, uh, don't write me uh, till you all uh, hear from me again, um, because he, he knew that he was about to go overseas. He wanted to get there and then be able to tell them about all the things that he had heard on the ship and all of that and had seen. Um, but as we'll talk about here in a minute, uh, that would not, not be the case. Right. Uh, from what I uh, do recall about the story, it's a... Uh, it's fairly tragic, uh, and that all begins on his uh, his voyage over, right? Yes, and it actually starts before they even get on the ship. Okay. Uh, so what happens is uh, on September 25th, uh, they are in New Jersey. Uh, over the next few days from September 25th to September 29th, they are getting everything ready for the ship to be loaded. So they're slowly getting everything loaded onto the ship. Uh, they actually are moved. The 57th is moved from uh, Camp Merritt down to Hoboken, which is right there on the on the river there, uh, going out near New York City. And so they get moved down there. They actually travel by ferry uh, down there. Um, and so they go down there uh, pretty quickly, and they're being kind of held there in Hoboken and are slowly getting onto the ship, which the USS Leviathan uh, was the largest ship that was sailing the seas at that time. It was originally actually a German ship. Okay. Um, it was uh, originally called the Vaterland, uh, and it was actually built in 1913. And it was a very big ship, um, but a very fast ship. Um, it was said they could hold as many as 10,000 troops during the war and traveled as fast as 22 knots, which is pretty impressive for a ship back then. Um, from what I understand, this ship actually didn't travel with an escort because it was so fast. Uh, German U-boats actually couldn't sink the ship. Wow. And so it traveled by itself just speeding up flying back and across. forth during the war, flying across the Atlantic Ocean. Had it been in service already transporting troops, you know, Early on in, in 1917 and early yes, 1918? Yes, uh, it had. It, uh, the United States actually captured it um, in 1917, okay. and they actually took it from, it was originally a cruise liner, and it had been actually kind of transformed into a, cru- a troop ship, and uh, they had actually started using it not too long after the United States joined the war. Cool. And so it actually made a few journeys across, but this journey here is more infamous, I guess you could say, than the others. Yeah. Um, because what happens is, uh, on September 28th, uh, the 57th is actually moving to get onto the ship. And as they're moving onto the ship, uh, a lot of the men are starting to fall down on the sides of the road. They're trying to march, and suddenly they just collapse. And so the leaders are, are very concerned. They don't know what's going on. And so uh, some of the quotes from some of the higher commanders mm-hmm. there in the 57th talked about how uh, the Spanish flu influenza had hit the 57th Pioneer. And they talked about how uh, the, the camp surgeon was summoned to the group. They were all kind of just waiting to board the ship there. And, and the, the camp surgeon was kind of going through all the men and said that the entire infantry unit was infected. And they said that the men needed to be held in Hoboken. They did not need to enter the ship because wow. if they got on there, uh, it would just spread like wildfire to everyone on board. And so uh, some of the upper leaders of the 57th reached out to the War Department down in Washington, and they were asking, like, hey, our entire regiment is infected with, the, with influenza. Like, mm-hmm. we don't need to go across. Like, is there any way you can stop this from going on? And the War Department's like, no, just send them on. It'll be fine. And wow. so all of the 57th get loaded on there, about 100 of the men. So uh, to give you a little bit of an idea, there was about 3,400 men that were in the 57th. Okay. About 100 of them immediately fall sick. Uh, they all, they just can't even get onto the ship. Uh, a few more are loaded on the ship but are so sick they immediately take them off the ship in ambulances. And they were still taking off men right before the ship departed. So, like, they're literally putting up the gangplanks and there are still ambulances trying to get off with these men. And 
So they begin going out to sea, and the ship uh, the ship's journey would be from September 29th to October 8th of 1918. Okay. So it took about I don't know nine ten days to get across the Atlantic there, and during that time the entire ship is just covered in patients that are sick. Um, there's a report that the Naval Department talks about how there were just pools of blood everywhere um, from the pneumonia that the men were developing, how the, 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 there were some nurses and some doctors on the ship that were trying to cure the, uh, trying to help the patients. And they, they just couldn't help all of them because there were just too many of them that were sick. Um, they, the entire hospital bay filled up within 24 hours. Uh, on the ship there and and talking about how their men just lined all over the decks just laying just just throwing up just sick and pools of blood coming from from their noses and they were just in horrible conditions and the doctors couldn't do anything about it yeah what a what an absolute nightmare on that ship i wonder were there any reports of the uh of the crew of the ship or or anything like that or is it mostly kind of focused on just the men they're transporting or did Basically, everybody gets sick, the nurses and everything. So a lot of, uh, a lot of the nurses would get sick. Um, some of the other crew members on the mm-hmm. Leviathan would get sick. A lot of the captains and the higher-up people would actually just kind of board themselves off from quarantine the other people, off. kind of quarantine themselves so they didn't get sick because you needed everybody. Uh, you didn't, if everybody got sick, then it was going to be a disaster. And so some of the people would kind of quarantine themselves off. Um, some of uh, the Pioneer, the 57th Pioneer, uh, they were trying their best to just stay away from the whole situation, kind of isolate themselves from the sick patients, but then each other, like, they wouldn't know who was sick, and so somebody would be sick amongst some people that were healthy and you'd get them sick, and it just, just spiraled out of control as all these men were getting sick there. The uh, and so, you know, inevitably, our, uh, uh, our guy that we're, we're looking at, Clyde Heston, he's on the ship and uh, certainly not... Uh, immune to what's going around so he falls ill pretty quickly do you know anything about the timeline when he got sick so we know uh, that he doesn't die on the ship Uh, we do know based on the reports of the log from the leviathan during that time there's about 91 92 men of the 57th that die on the ship he does not die on the ship but he does get sick on the ship he is one of about uh, 1500 men uh, Mm -hmm. that actually gets sick on the ship and are carried off the ship um, uh, because once they arrive in Brest, France, uh, they, uh, they, they stay in harbor for about 24 hours, and the first thing they do is they bring ambulances in, because they'd already sent word ahead that, hey, our ship is contaminated. We need help immediately. And so uh, these ambulances immediately board and start taking all these sick patients off the, the ship. It takes about 24 hours or so, yeah. and they get all, those ship, all of them off the ship. And uh, Clyde Heston was one of those men uh, that was sick and was taken off in an ambulance uh, into Brest, okay. uh, France there. So. Okay. Wow. Uh, was he, after that terrible uh, voyage over, was he able to write home in any way and uh, let, you know, let his family know? Or was he completely uh, in, incapable of uh, sending word home? So he was so bad that he... He could not send home. Uh, he could not send any letter or any sort of mm-hmm. message home to his family what was going on. Uh, it's kind of sad because the family would receive a small little postcard uh, from the AEF mm-hmm. saying, the ship your boy has sailed on has safely arrived overseas. Mm-hmm. So they had no idea what was going on. They didn't know that all the men were on there were sick. Um, they knew that the ship had arrived to France, but they didn't know that he was actually sick himself. Right. It would give you, you know, your first worry is that they, they would be uh, attacked by U-boats or something. And, and here they are actually making it across and, and the family gets that word. That's mm-hmm. terrible. Um, so, you know, he's carried off the ship on, uh, on an ambulance. 
do you know anything else what happens there? He gets taken to a hospital in France and passes away there shortly after. Is it quite some time? Or? It's not too long after he uh, arrives on wow. the, the on, in France there. Uh, he, the rest of the survivors, they actually, uh, that weren't sick, they would actually be marched up into a camp on the north side of Brest. Um, uh, from what I understand, some of the uh, letters that I saw, uh, there was a little Red Cross uh, letter that had been sent to the family, and this is where I got some of the final details of his last moments. Okay. Um, it said that he had been taken ashore and taken to a large base ho- hospital at Curion. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but Curion Hospital uh, there, just outside of the city. Um, he uh, was taken care of by some nurses and doctors from North Carolina. Um, and they were apparently untiring in their devotion to the patient there. Um, he tried his best uh, to uh, survive, but he was unable to, uh, and he would pass away at 3 p.m. on October 10th of 1918. So about 48 hours after he is taken off the ship, he would sadly uh, succumb to the, they would say bronchopneumonia was the official okay. cause of death. Oh, and uh, the guys that were, the other guys that were, uh, hauled off the ship. Uh, you said there was several hundred uh, sick that were carried off the boat. Uh, did, did Was that their fate as well? Did a lot of guys sort of make it out, or, or did you find any of that information? So most of the men that were carried off in, in ambulances and all of that, um, they would pass away uh, to uh, due to the influenza or the pneumonia that was, uh, that was involved with it there. Um, I couldn't get an exact number, but it was definitely in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them were the Tennesseans because the bulk majority of these men uh, were Tennesseans, the, the draftees from September of 1918. The, ba- the vast majority of the men that would pass away were from, uh, from Tennessee. And so at several hundred of the men, most of them uh, would pass away if they had gotten sick. Yeah, wow. What an incredible time of the war because you know you're right there at the end you're a month away from the end of the war and from what i understand the the influenza had really spread um and and that was sort of the height of of the time you know that it was it was really really prevalent and uh to make it through all of that um to actually make it to france and, and pass away right there without actually ever getting to uh, you know, take part in the war effort at all. Um, that's it's, it's truly a very tragic story, but it sounds like it happened to you know a, a lot of people. Um, and this is just one ship, one instance. Uh, you know, how many other guys that were affected or or uh, in other camps across the country? Yeah, so. and, and if I can add to that, uh, the fifty seventh themselves, they actually never saw combat. And so I did a little bit of research into the end of the, the time there. Uh, they, the, the other men that didn't get sick, they would be sent off to a camp there in Brest. They would be sent over to Le Mans region of France there, um, and they were actually supposed to help the 83rd Division. Um, from what's another a story that I read from a, another uh, a man who was in the 57th Pioneer, uh, they would actually be, receive a lot of training there outside of Le Mans, France. Um, and by November 11th of 1918, they are still training there in, in that area, so they didn't even get close to the front. And then they're like, oh, the war's over. And so after about a month there, they're just sent back to France. And it's like all these men's lives uh, could have been saved if they had just stayed in the United States because they get shipped all this way over here, and they go through all of this nightmare, and right. then they don't even see service. And so it's just, wow. it's just really sad. Yeah, uh, you know, that's one conversation me and you have had before um, is – what what do you feel like you can take away from this story? I know we've touched on it a little bit, but what do you feel like Clyde and, and others like him 
uh, what would you uh, think they'd want to be remembered for in this whole situation? I, w I think they would remember would be remembered for uh, being uh, just being courageous. I think kind of stepping up and and volunteering essentially because mm -hmm. Clyde just he was eager to sign his draft card and go mm -hmm. serve his country. And he even wrote back in some of his letters to his family that he wanted his siblings to sign up. That he's like, I'm loving this experience. I want you all to, to serve too. And so he he wanted to serve. And and I think that I I just want to tell his story because. Uh, he, he wanted to serve and he tried to serve. Uh, he went to camp, went through the, the two weeks of camp, went overseas, but he didn't get to serve. Right. And so I, I feel like something that I really want to point out is just that he, uh, just his, his ability, his, he wanted to serve and all, all, all of that. Uh, that's kind of just the main thing I really want to talk about. Is yeah, uh, yeah, I think, you know, like we, like we all talked about before Veterans Day, you know, just telling these, these folks' story that um, are not uh, very well known at all. You know, you yeah. you don't think about the hundreds or thousands of guys that that went through the same experiences as Clyde did, and uh, and never did get to fight. You know, never did see the front lines or anything, but were willing to be there. So that was a pretty pretty cool story that uh, that you were able to tell on that day, and appreciate you sharing it with us today. Um, one thought, uh, thing, as we kind of wrap it up here, Alec, I know you had uh, you had asked your uh, folks, your family, about um, about his story, and that's kind of where you it all sort of started. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us about that? Just you know, finding out from your family uh, themselves. Yeah. So when I learned about uh, this, how we were going to do these presentations on uh, a soldier, I uh, went to my family. I was like, hey. Um, do you all know anything about Clyde Heston? And, and my grandmother, um, she knew a little bit, but she didn't really know a, a ton about him. And she's like, well, my, my brother, she uh, is actually named after him. Uh, his name is uh, Clyde Franklin uh, Denton is okay. his name. And uh, he uh, um, apparently had gathered a lot of information on that. And that's all she told me is like he had information. Okay. Well, we actually went and we found uh, the original documents that the family had received uh, from uh, from Clyde, like all of the letters, the, the 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 different things talking about how he passed away, the little right. postcard about how his ship had traveled overseas, all of that that I just mentioned. Uh, we actually went and visited him, and uh, he actually had those in a small little box uh -huh. um, in there. So I went through them, and I was just amazed. I was like, "This is everything I need to know about him." Because right. Because all I knew before was that, oh, he was born here and he died here. But now I know his entire family. I know when he goes off to, to the training and when he goes off overseas. And, yeah. and I know why he dies and when he dies. And, and those personal letters, too, are, you know, for family history purposes, that's just uh, absolute gold to be able to have it preserved. Exactly, yes. So that's that's awesome. That was really cool to hear that that's how you kind of stumbled across it. And I, I uh, want to... Uh, believe too that I remember your family attended your your talk on that day yes, they and they did. they learned a lot yes they did my uh, uh, I hadn't really told them too much about it I kind of like teased it a little bit like hey uh, I'm doing this report I've taken all this information like I'd love y'all to come out and learn about it so I didn't tell them before the event because I wanted them to come out and see the event and everything so my grandmother came out uh, some of her uh, siblings came out to the event and of course my my parents my siblings came along and and uh, I gave that presentation, and they were they were very m m emotional about it. Yeah, uh, I think that was the best way to describe it because that was like my grandmother. That was her uncle. Um, mm -hmm. She, of course, she never met him before, but she'd heard a lot of stories. And and her mother um, was just a little baby 
mm -hmm. when uh, he had actually been shipped off to, to go to South Carolina. That was the story that she actually told me at Veterans Day, and she had held that from me. And I was like, <laughs> oh, so I held something for new, you, and right. now you're holding it from me. But she talked about how her mother, um, she had just been born uh, a few months before Clyde left to South Carolina and talked about how she always talked about when she was a baby that the last night he was at home, she'd actually been rocked on his leg that, that yeah. night before that, he left to South Carolina. That's incredible. Yeah, and, that's that's so cool, uh, Alec, yeah. that, uh, you know, it, it's a direct connection that you have mm -hmm. to World War One and... and um, and just uh, yeah, a good a good story to remember and, and be able to recount. Um, and I guess as a, a good challenge, uh, me and Alec talked about this prior to our uh, episode today. Is uh, you know challenging folks out there, our listeners, uh, whoever whoever's um, interested in World War One history, to to ask your own family about it because you never know what you'll find out. You might find uh, that you have. An uncle, or a great uncle, or a grandfather, or something that that uh, has a connection to that war, and and uh, it's you know fairly easy these days to to find out some of that information. Which actually, Alec, I wanted to ask you about. You know, uh, you you do a lot of research at the park on on all you know various different topics. Yeah. Uh, what did you find was the best resource to use for Clyde's story? Oh, I guess other than his letters and, and original stuff you had. Uh, is there any sort of online source that is best to use? Yeah, I would say uh, for me, right out of the bat, just trying to find some of the details about him was Family Search. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the first thing that I had used, um, and where I had found, oh, this is where he's born. This is uh, this is when he passed away. Of course, it doesn't have every, it didn't have everything. Like it didn't say like why he died or anything like that. But I would say Family Search was the first good source that gave me an idea of who he was. So if you go and talk to your grandmother, be like, hey, do you know about anybody who served in World War One? And they say this so-and-so, then you could just type that into Family Search and get a kind of introduction into his story. Another thing that I used was like the National Archives, uh, Library of Congress, um, mm -hmm. because I was able to tie some things together with that. So those were also some good resources. But I would say Family Search uh, was, a, was a great place for me, at least, to kind of start with that story. Yeah, very cool. Well, yeah, um, just ask, uh, talk to your family about it. You'll never know what you'll what you'll find, and uh, you know you can you can find some really cool stories that relate to uh, to the Great War, yes. and uh, and exactly what we're trying to promote here on the the uh, Pal Mal Doughboys podcast. So appreciate you joining us, Alec, and thanks yes. for the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, hey, everybody, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.